Welcome to another edition of Tech Writer Voices. We're online at www.techwritervoices.com. And today we have a presentation from Mike Hamilton of Madcap Software. And Mike is presenting on Flare. He came to the Suncoast chapter in Tampa, Florida and gave us a two-hour demo of a very fascinating product. And um, he also talks about some of the other products in, in the suite. Although you, you can't see the screen of some of the things he's showing, he describes it really well, and it's just a fascinating presentation. Official introduction, uh, beyond I'm Mike Hamilton. Um, I've been around the industry for many, many, many years. Um, some of you who have you know, visited the old Blue Sky Software slash eHelp booths at trade shows and things might recognize me. Um, I was with RoboHelp for over half of its life, and now I'm over here with Madcap Software. Uh, but going back even further than that, I am a bit of a, an odd person to be in the software side of the business. I am a writer, just like most of the folks likely are out in the audience. Um, I started off in, of all places, the high-tech sector, the nuclear power industry, and we were working with extremely large uh, volumes of paper uh, documentation, reactor plant manuals, steam plant manuals, multi-thousand pages of government documents, and it was, now this is going back a few years, but it was still the old scary days of when updates came out, you would get this little update package, and it would literally have instructions like, okay, cut out this paragraph, and go to page 947 and paste it over paragraph 12 on that page. And you were literally pasting in paper hard hard-coded changes in manuals for running a reactor plant. <laughs> so that was my, my first introduction into the world of documentation. Uh, from there I got into another facet of high-tech, semiconductors. And it was a completely different world. I went to working inside the clean rooms, uh, what they call the fabs, where they make the actual microprocessors, where all documentation has to be electronic. There's no paper allowed inside the clean rooms because of dust. So I went from these, you know, multi-thousand page paper only manuals to now exclusively electronic documentation. So I've seen quite a few sides of this industry, but then I made a sideways segue over into instructional design. I had found I had a, a pretty good knack for writing curriculum. And so I did that in the semiconductor industry for a while. And then out of the blue, this little software company that I'd never heard of up to that point called Blue Sky Software kind of knocked on my door one day and asked me if I would come over and write the training curriculum for this cool thing they had called RoboHelp. And so that's actually how I got my start with Blue Sky Software. I was one of the co-authors for the original certified RoboHelp training program. Uh, once we launched that product, the training department was up and running. Uh, my partner ended up moving on and managing the training department, and I went on into the product side and ended up becoming the product manager for RoboHelp. Uh, so I was with RoboHelp from version 8, uh, publicly known as version 2000, all the way up through version 13, which was publicly RoboHelp X5, uh, the product that's currently shipping as we speak. Um, so that's a little bit about my background, how I got to where I am, and what I do in the industry. Okay, now for the presentation tonight. I really broke it into, into a couple of parts. Um, Obviously, I want to show you Flare and talk about Flare and some of the other cool Madcap products, but I can never go do a presentation like this without a whole bunch of, okay, what's the scoop with RoboHelp? What happened? You know, that always comes up. 
So we're going to start off with some slides of what exactly happened. Let's kill some of the myth and folklore and rumor that's going on out there on the lists and the blogs and the from somebody who was inside who lived through it, the Rebel Help Macromedia story. So we started off as Blue Sky Software. Um, Blue Sky Software actually started way back, I believe, 78, 79. So it actually even predates Windows. Um, but the first real product that really put them on the map was RoboHelp. And it was released about the time of Windows 3.0. And it was designed to help people write this new help format Microsoft had come up with called WinHelp. And then the company carried forward for several years. Uh, we did have a name change at one point. We became eHelp. But then the big news, in October of 2003, we were acquired by Macromedia. Now, I mentioned I'd done instructional design work. Well, a lot of that had an electronic slant to it. I was using Macromedia Director to create live simulators for high-power lasers and things used in the semiconductor industry. So I was a huge fan, and of course I was a Dreamweaver user, so I was a huge fan of Macromedia. And so when I found out that eHelp was going to become a part of Macromedia through an acquisition, I mean, woohoo! I mean, that's, that's the big time, you know? We're going from a little San Diego company to part of a global software company. So I was excited. And since I was the product manager for RoboHelp, you know, there was singing and there was dancing. Because one of the problems I was having with RoboHelp, as a tool, it's an amazing tool at what it does. But we were starting to bump our head against a ceiling with what we could do with the editor that was built into it. Um, and that's not to throw any rocks at RoboHelp. Um, you've got to remember when we started, way back in you know, the early 80s with RoboHelp, we were making early decisions for the core architecture that then kind of haunted us for the rest of its life. Because we made decisions to go one way, and then this neat group called the W3C was formed. They started creating web standards. And where RoboHelp went this way, all the web standards went that way. And we pretty much spent the rest of RoboHelp's life trying to push it back into alignment with its web standards. And because of the editor that was in there, we were never really able to. So I was excited. I knew we had pushed RoboHelp about as far as we could, but now we were going to have access to all new groups, all new technologies. And that's pretty much, you know, finally, the resources to take RoboHelp to the next level. That's what I truly believed. I was excited. And then this little thing called reality jumped in. And it turns out the big reality was that Macromedia wasn't really all that excited about RoboHelp. And people say, well, why did they buy the company then? Well, there was a tool we had that they really did like called RoboDemo. Um, if you're not familiar with RoboDemo, it was a tool for doing uh, recordings of software applications on your desktop that would automatically create uh, tutorials, walkthroughs, uh, electronic training, Great tool for doing that, and it used the Flash technology for delivery. Well, Macromedia is all about e-learning. They're all about Flash. They really wanted RoboDemo something fierce. RoboHelp, well, you know, it dominates this industry. That can't be bad to have on the list of products. It's making a lot of money. Ah, sure, what the heck, we'll bring it along. But RoboHelp wasn't the driving factor of why they wanted us. It was really RoboDemo. So then what happened? Well, we also had this cool little tool called RoboPresenter. Now, I doubt, does anybody in this room even remember RoboPresenter? 
Not a one. I didn't think so. It was only for sale, I believe, for about five days. <laughs> what RoboPresenter was is RoboDemo had been such a hit and so successful, we thought we were onto something. You know, what we're doing for software applications, let's do the same thing for stand-up PowerPoint training. So we created a tool that allowed you to import a PowerPoint slide deck, and then you, you could, just like with RoboDemo, you could add narration, you could add quizzing, you could add testing, you could literally make it an over-the-web, standalone, you know, web training very easily, and it was under $500. So, came out, first five days, it just took off, was selling like crazy, we signed the paperwork with Macromedia, bang, it was killed instantly. Well, what the heck happened there? Well, it turns out Macromedia had a tool that was doing almost the exact same thing. It was called Breeze. Only it was enterprise software, which means it was sixty or $70,000. And so they would call a customer and try and sell them $60,000 worth of software, and the customer would say, well, that's okay, I don't need it. I just bought this RoboPresenter thing for 400 bucks. And it was really killing their, their Breeze sales. So they acquired us to get RoboDemo, to get rid of RoboPresenter, and this RoboHelp thing, ah, it's making money. That's good for the bank account. So we signed the deal. RoboPresenter went away that very day. I mean, there, there wasn't even a dust clearing time. It just disappeared off the sales lists. And then about a week later, all the, what I call, little robos got killed off. All the little support tools we had built. Uh, RoboLinker was a tool for doing context-sensitive help, but without access to the programmers or the source code. We could literally take a finished Windows application and then tie context-sensitive help topics to all the dialogues externally. Great little tool. Um, RoboScreen Capture was killed off. The standalone RoboPDF was killed off. All these little support robos we had developed. But being the product manager for RoboHelp, and being the optimist that I am, I'm thinking, you know what? It's not a big deal. It's a new company. They're just trying to make us a better fit. They've never had a product like RoboHelp before that has so many little pieces and variations. They're just trying to make us more kind of Dreamweaver-like. I understand. No problem. I'll push the I Believe button, and we'll press on. Then about six months later was the big one. The newest release in the RoboHelp family in years by far was something called RoboHelp for FrameMaker. We had put, I don't know how many tens of thousands of man hours or people hours into that product. Um, it was launched. It was what, very successful. It was exceeding its sales targets for the first two months. And then out of the blue, it was just wiped out which made no sense to me. It's like, if we were going to do this, why didn't we make this decision a few months ago? Um, but the reason we were finally given was that, you know, it doesn't matter that it's beating its sales targets. It would be too much of a distraction to train a new technical support staff. So therefore, we don't want to have a new product on the market at this time. Now, it didn't make a lot of sense to me because it was going to be the same technical support staff that was already supporting RoboHelp. In hindsight... There may have been some talk at upper levels of what the future held for us that I just wasn't aware of at that time. But even then, I'm thinking, okay, we still have RoboHelp, though. So, you know, it's not panic mode, but we definitely circled the wagons. And I pulled together all my development staff, and we had a big meeting, and said, I think what we need to do, we need to make RoboHelp a better fit 
in a macromedia world. I mean, macromedia is used to selling tools like Flash, where there, at that time there was one copy of Flash. You know, you wanted Flash? Okay, here it is. And then later on they added the Flash server and a couple of other things, but it was still nice and simple. RubbleHelp, though, if you go look at the RubbleHelp, what we used to call a SKU list, there were 24 different products that made up RubbleHelp. It was very complex for a salesperson to wrap their brain around. I mean, when we were a standalone company, now that we're just one product in a huge company, most of the salespeople wouldn't even put in the time. Um, I don't even know if I can do this by memory anymore, but let's see if I can do it. There was RoboHelp for Word, RoboHelp HTML, RoboHelp Office, RoboHelp Office Pro, RoboHelp Office Pro for .NET, uh, RoboInfo, RoboInfo Pro, RoboInfo Pro for .NET, the Connectivity Pack, the RoboEngine, the RoboEngine.net, um, Robo Screen Capture, Robo PDF, Robo Source Control. Um, I mean, all, you add them all up, and it literally was 24 SKUs that made up this RoboHelp cloud. And so that was the plan. Okay, we're working on RoboHelp X6. We've completely rewritten it. All these standalone modules will be bundled in together. We're going to have one full product. It's going to be a good fit. Everybody's going to be happy. Well, we never got there. October of 2004. Not quite a year into Macromedia's ownership of RoboHelp, my boss, a nice lady, name of Miriam, came down from San Francisco, where it's where the headquarters for Macromedia was, but with her was somebody from the HR department. That's never a good sign. So they pulled us all into a conference room and kind of split us down the middle and said, okay, the half that's on this side, Thank you so much. It's been nice for you, you know, having a chance to work here. Here are your final checks. We don't need you anymore. And they let half the RoboHelp staff go. That was the developers, the QA personnel, uh, manufacturing personnel, pretty much the entire team beginning to end. And of course, being the silly optimist that I am, I raised my hand and said, well, how do we finish RoboHelp X6 with half a team? I mean, we're only three months from release here. I mean, that's, that's going to be tight as it is. Well, we need to talk to you about that. We're not going to finish RoboHelp X6. We're going to put it on the shelf, and those of you that are left, you're going to take RoboHelp X5 back off the shelf, and you're going to go through, and between now, October, and June, you're going to document every line of code inside the RoboHelp application, all several millions of them. Why? So that when we send it to India, the Indian programmers will know what to do with it. So they were rather upfront with us, so we all knew what we were walking into, that come June we were all pretty much out of work, but I do have to be fair to Macromedia, uh, there was some, some bonus incentive money that was offered to everybody who was willing to stay and finish, um, so they were upfront, I mean it was an honest discussion, sad, but honest, and being the silly optimist again, I'm thinking, this is bad, but you know what? At least RoboHelp's alive. It's going forward. It may be in India, but it's going forward. So we were still pushing to do the best job we could. Well, June never got here. Come February, my boss came back from San Francisco again. But this time, not only did she have an HR rep with her, but it was the VP of HR and one of the executive VPs for the company. And that's when we found out that priority, not for those on the microphone, I'm using the air quotation marks, priorities had changed. Um, 
Rebel Help was no longer that attractive to them, which we couldn't understand. It was one of the most profitable products in the company. Uh, we ran a very tight uh, team as far as expenses went, so the profits were quite good. Uh, but in any case, the whole rest of the team was let go. That was the end of RoboHelp development under Macromedia. So it was not a happy-go-lucky time. Uh, the, the official reasons we were given were that it was taking too long to hire a team in India of developers. Um, in hindsight, what we found out was that some of the other Macromedia teams, I believe it was the Dreamweaver team, was trying to hire a team in India. And so every time we would find a good candidate, go through the interview process and say, yes, we want that person. As soon as we turned our back, the Dreamweaver team stole them. So after months of interviewing, I think we had one person on the RoboHelp development team because they kept getting kind of hijacked for other Macromedia teams. But in any case, things ended. Now here we are several years later. In hindsight, I would bet that this became a shift of focus because they were in the process of being acquired by Adobe. So I bet when they purchased us originally, they were in a growth mode. Oh yeah, let's bring them on. This is good. But then at some point, a few months later, they started talking to Adobe and were really trying to not grow so much as to consolidate and be attractive for Adobe to buy them. And I think we became noise at that point. Purely conjecture on my part. But having just been through an acquisition, that's pretty much what eHelp did when they found out Macromedia was interested. All the plans changed, development uh, you know, strategies changed. That's why Flash Help was developed, because we knew that Macromedia liked the Flash technology. So all companies do that when they know they're being looked at as an acquisition target. But that's just my speculation. In any case, that was the end of the original RoboHelp development team. Um, now the cool thing is, uh, they also let go some of the, our, our San Diego support staff and the uh, VP of HR that we had had in San Diego going all the way back to the Blue Sky Software days, a uh, great lady, actually put together a final kind of pub night so they could all get together, have a final beer, cry on each other's shoulders kind of a thing and say goodbye. While at that pub night, I started talking to a few people and they're like, well, remember Bjorn? I was like, well, how could I forget Bjorn? Bjorn was kind of the genius architect behind RoboHelp but he had been laid off back in October, and I'd lost touch with him. Well, it turns out, in that time, he had started working on a new visual XML editor. That's just kind of the guy that Bjorn Backlund is. He writes editors, kind of a, a strange niche for developers. So after that meeting, I got in contact with Bjorn, and we started talking, and this idea started to coalesce to say, you know what, if RoboHelp is dead, that's just leaving too many people in the lurch could we do this again? And we started talking, and that's where Madcap Software was, the whole concept came from. Uh, before people could start scattering to the winds, we started contacting as many of the core folks as we could reach and say, hey, do you want to put the team back together again? And so the three founders are myself, uh, Bjorn Backlund, he is the kind of the genius architect behind RoboHelp, and he also wrote RoboHelp for FrameMaker pretty much single-handedly. Um, and then uh, Anthony Olivier, who was the CEO of Madcaps, of, excuse me, Madcap, of eHelp Corporation in the last year and a half before we were acquired by Macromedia. So we've got the business genius, the architecture genius, and the guy who knew the product in the market. Those are the three founders of Madcap Software. 
Um, a lot of their team came with us. Several of the key programmers, uh, the RoboHelp QA manager is with us. He's now our QA manager. Um, even some of the original tech support staff and even some of the salespeople are the same people we used to deal with in the old eHelp days. Uh, we're still in San Diego. Uh, this is our office. To another one of those little tidbits. If you walk out the front door here and if you look up the hill, the Macromedia building's about right here. <laughs> Purely coincidence. We did not plan it that way. Uh, we looked at about seven different properties and this was just the best fit for our needs. Uh, we've already expanded once uh, in the year and a half that we've been there. We originally had most of this bottom floor on the front of the building. We've now mirrored that. We've taken over the majority of the bottom floor. Uh, so we are growing quite rapidly. Uh, when we originally announced, uh, now you're about to remember, that first, that final RoboHelp layoff was in February. We started meeting in early March, decided to do this, and at the end of March, we attended our first trade show, which was the Riders UA event in Las Vegas. So this company came together extremely quickly. Uh, the main goal at that show was just to talk to the key people in the industry, you know, some of the STC officers who might have been in attendance, you know, some of the key people who do uh, some of the writing of articles in the industry, the presenters, just to let them know that no matter what, because at this point, the RoboHelp news hadn't quite leaked out yet, or it was starting to, and we didn't want people to panic. It's like, yes, it's bad, RoboHelp development has stopped, but we're working on a solution for people. That was the goal. The reality was, I don't know if you can see this back there, we were just swarmed with people for the entire conference. And so we knew we were onto something. This was, this was definitely filling a need that was out there. So then we announced kind of three key things we were focusing on with the new product we were working on, which didn't even have a name at the time. But one, we wanted to make sure that existing RoboHelp folks had an upgrade path, that their old RoboHelp work didn't go to waste. This, we really wanted to kind of create the same experience people would have had had RoboHelp X6 ever shipped. That was our goal. The second thing we wanted to do, and this is a big, bold statement, provide the best help authoring tool ever seen. Now, how can we make such a big claim? Well, RoboHelp, the issues that were plaguing RoboHelp were the same issues plaguing almost every other tool in this industry, their own age. Um, if you look at a lot of the architecture in RoboHelp, it comes from that Windows 95 time frame. It's a much different world now. And so some of the things that were actually holding RoboHelp back were its own architectural choices we made early on. With Flare, it's not only a new architecture, it's a whole brand new programming language. Uh, RoboHelp was built in C++. Flare is written entirely in the new C-sharp language. Uh, so there was a rumor floating around that we had stolen the RoboHelp code when we left. Not a chance for legal reasons, but not even a chance for technology reasons. The old RoboHelp code wouldn't work in a C-sharp environment. So it is completely fresh from the ground up. Um, in fact, something we were really proud of is Microsoft was impressed enough when we showed them the first copy of Flare. They actually chose it as a, a showcase product when they announced the Visual Studio 2005 product last November. So we hadn't even officially released Flare to the public yet, and it was already a showcase for Microsoft. So we were definitely doing the right things. And then the third point, lesson learned from the RoboHelp days, everything in Flare had to work in a standards compliant mode, 
and it had to support an XML-based workflow. Now, similar to the old RoboHelp days, if you knew HTML, great. If you didn't, you didn't need to have to. Same thing with Flare. If you know XML, great. It's an advantage, but it's not absolutely necessary to use the tool. You don't have to know a lick of XML, and you can still function in a Flare environment. So those were the three points that we really focused on. And then the public announcements that we made, or the public commitments that we made, was one, we wanted to provide as close to a RoboHelp type workflow and interface as we could. We didn't want to just recreate everything from scratch. It needed to be familiar. Now notice, it does not say a RoboHelp clone though. That is probably the one point of contention I have had with people coming from RoboHelp, downloading the Flare trial, and then sending me hate mail. It's too different from RoboHelp. I want the exact same RoboHelp interface, but newer. Well, the thing is, we couldn't do the exact same RoboHelp interface. Um, and forget the legal aspects of just copying an interface, but just architecturally, there are parts of RoboHelp that don't work that well anymore. One of the biggest problems is indexing. As we evolve into more and more of a single source world, RoboHelp has started down the path of single sourcing with conditionals and you know, at different output targets. But one of the big Achilles heels is this indexing model. If you use conditionals, let's say I have a page of content and I mark the center paragraph as being for the pro version of my software only. So when I generate the help for the light version of my software, I tell RoboHelp to remove that paragraph. Great, but all of the index words associated with that paragraph still get published. You now have orphan index keywords. Because in the RoboHelp model, index keywords are tied at the topic level. All RoboHelp knows, if this topic is included, include these keywords. It doesn't know about where on the page they were referencing. So that is a huge problem we had to overcome. And so that's one case. We have a completely new indexing model in Flare. Indexing is actually done at the character level, not at the topic level. So that overcomes that problem of the orphan keywords when doing single sourcing. And that's just one example. There's a gazillion examples of where our interface is either slightly or completely different than RoboHelp to overcome limitations in RoboHelp. You know, not just to confuse old RoboHelp users. So that was the goal there. The second thing is we had to provide the ability to open and use existing RoboHelp HTML projects. Uh, there are several hundred thousand pages of RoboHelp content to be conservative. We couldn't just tell people to start over. So that was one of the first things we worked on was our RoboHelp imports. Um, it isn't just content though. We not only pull in the RoboHelp content, but if you have context-sensitive linking, all of your alias and header files come over, uh, your browse sequences, your pop-ups, your related contents controls, or related topics controls, um, images. If you did it in RoboHelp, it comes over into Flare. But it goes through a cleansing process. All of that, anybody here ever get the joy of working at a code level in a RoboHelp uh, topic? couple of people. All the cutoff tags are gone. All the proprietary markup is gone. It is now valid XHTML that validates against W3C XHTML schema. That was important to us. So that's, now, 
Full disclosure, there is one thing we don't import though. If you have a custom web help skin, you've changed the, the icons and the colors, and the shape, that we don't import. That is the one thing you would have to create anew. Uh, and the main reason for that, the original requirements document called for being able to import those, but when we got to actually doing it, the web help we provide actually has many more options than the RoboHelp web help. And so there was no way to kind of create these new icons out of thin air. So there was just no good way to convert the custom web help skins. But short of the web help skins, everything comes over. Um, and then this, I know you can't read this from where you sit. I'll read the highlights to you. The main reason for this slide is we started hearing a lot of people talking about how, oh, have you seen this flare thing? It's just like RoboHelp, it's just XML-based. And we've gone so much further than RoboHelp ever did that I wanted to highlight some of the points. Um, they're both good help authoring tools. They both support doing conditional content for single sourcing. But Flare also supports the conditional index entries, like I mentioned earlier. We also support applying conditionals to a table of contents. Now, why is that necessary? Well, this came directly from doing what I call a job shadow. Uh, some people call it an over-the-shoulder interview, where we would literally go and sit behind somebody in a real office somewhere and watch them for several hours use RoboHelp. Wouldn't say a word, wouldn't comment, would just take notes. And one of the things I saw was somebody going through and applying conditional tags to hundreds of topics at the topic level. And afterwards, I asked them, I noticed you did this, why were you doing that? Oh, well, I wanted this one book to disappear out of the table of contents for this one doc set that I'm publishing. And so it made sense to us, why make people go tag several hundred topics when we could just put a tag on the book in the TOC? So we now support conditionals in the table of contents itself on either pages or books. Uh, we also support variables that RoboHelp does not support. Uh, what good are variables? Well, conditionals are great if you know the text in advance. Here's condition A, here's condition B. But sometimes you don't know in advance. Maybe you customize your documentation for OEM customers and you may add a new customer next week. Well, you can add a variable called customer name anywhere in the documentation you want. And then when you publish, you know, customer name equals XYZ Corp. Now, the full document set is customized for XYZ Corp. So variables are included in Flare, and then also something we call snippets. Now this is some um, content management technology without requiring an external database and all of the, the technical difficulties there, but it's actually a library of reusable elements. Um, probably the, the company I saw that jumped up in joy for this is we have some people in the pharmaceutical industry that have very specific you know, warnings and cautions that are mandated by the government and they have to be consistent. And they may be referenced a thousand times throughout the document set. Well, now they can write that warning as a snippet file once and then just reference it in a thousand topics and it automatically absorbs that content and it's guaranteed to be consistent. And if the FDA changes the wording, they just rewrite the snippet file one time and it repopulates all the points of reference. So we have the snippet library as well. We also support multiple tables of contents. Uh, this was another Achilles heel of RoboHelp. 
you could generate 15 versions of documentation out of RoboHelp, but they all had to share one table of contents. So that was a tall order. So in Flare, we've gone to a multiple table of contents model. You can have as many tables of contents as you need for a project. They can even be in multiple languages. Uh, our folks up in Canada love that. They can have a French table of contents, an English table of contents. At publish time, they can choose which one they want or a hybrid that includes both, you know, just one above the other. Um, clean code, we talked about full Unicode support. Um, if, has anybody ever run into the language limitations in Rebel Help? You'll be happy to know there are no such limitations in Flare. Uh, Rebel Help was limited to 12 of the Western European languages. The common ones, French, German, uh, Spanish, uh, Swedish, you know, the more... With Flare, you want to do Chinese, you want to do Japanese, Russian, Polish, we don't care. It's a fully Unicode authoring environment. Also has a multiple document interface, whereas in RoboHelp you could only have one page open at a time. I'll show you that in a minute. Um, and probably one of the biggest requested items, command line compile. Uh, the ability to build help from a batch file, from a script. Uh, a lot of people who work with software teams, they build the software every night. They want to be able to automatically build the documentation every night. And with RoboHelp, that just was not possible. Um, and in fact, kind of a sidebar story here. I mentioned earlier that one of our goals was to provide the best tool possible it, or ever seen. And we can do that because of the new architecture and the new technology. Command line compile is a perfect example. As product manager for RoboHelp, I put in the specs, you know, for RoboHelp X3, we must have command line compile. We're falling behind here. We need to have this. So the programmers worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And after about three weeks, just gave up, marked it next version, and went on to something else. Oh, man. Okay. RoboHelp X4 comes along. I write it back into the specification again. This time we have to have it. So they took the code they'd already worked on, dusted it off, worked on it for three or four more weeks, and gave up, threw up their hands, and marked it next version. This is getting crazy. RoboHelp X5 comes around. Now this time, it's a must. It's like at the top of the list of must-have uh, requirements. Once again, they worked and worked and worked, gave up, and shelved it. It was just because of the core architecture in RoboHelp, it was too difficult to implement. Well, I, I was getting fearful we were going to have the same problem with Flare because we had told people it would be included. We got to beta 2. It still wasn't there. So I had, went to Bjorn's office and went to Bjorn and said, Bjorn, we've got to get this in here. We only have one beta left, beta 3. And in typical developer fashion, you know, oh, grumble, 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 grumble. Off he goes. Two, hour, or two hours later, he comes over and knocks on my cube. You want to test that command line compile thing? It's ready. So I couldn't get it in three builds of RoboHelp, or three versions of RoboHelp, but it only took Bjorn two hours to add it into Flare. And that's just the huge advantage you have starting fresh with clean code and modern technologies. Alrighty. But that's enough PowerPoint. I'm tired of this. We actually need to get into some live stuff here. Alright, so on screen now, I've pulled up the Flare interface, and actually before I do that, I should probably do a little quick segue 
and talk about some of the other products we have because I, I don't think we're going to have time to get in too much detail on some of the others, but I don't want to run out of time. And once I start this demo, it tends to go over time. So, Flare is the flagship product. It is a lot of the things we wanted to do in Rebel Help, but we're never able to. I've got the flyers up here. Feel free to grab those. But I've been getting some questions about our other products as well. There is a capture product. It is a screen capture tool. Um, and the very first things that people ask then is, oh my lord, why do we need another screen capture tool? There's a bazillion of them. There are, but this has a slightly different bent to it. If your goal in taking a screen capture is to make pretty, pretty fancy pictures, you're probably better off with one of the others. Uh, capture does have a few edge detail things you can do, a few highlight things you can do, but the main reason we built it was to accommodate a writer's workflow. And one of the things we found is people don't just take a screen capture and keep it forever. They'll take a screen capture during alpha, then come beta 2, it's changed, they've got to take it again, and then come the release candidate, the interface has changed slightly, they have to take the screen capture again, and every time they have to rebuild the wheel. So what we've done with Capture, it's using some layering technology. So when we take a screen capture, it is a bitmap image, but that becomes the bottom layer. So now if I put in an arrow, a highlight, you know, a text callout, that's on a vector layer that lives above the bitmap layer. So then come beta 2, I decide to retake that screen capture, it just replaces the background image. It doesn't destroy all the callouts, text bubbles, highlights, all the other things that I've done. So that's the one thing it's really focused on is trying to facilitate the fact that you will have to retake those screen captures several times, but it's also tightly integrated into the Flare environment, much tighter than we can do with any of the other tools. So as we get into this, if somebody will remind me, because I'm sure I'll forget, I will do a quick screen capture and show you that integration. Um, it's literally the Flare interface is doing real-time XML transforms or XSLT transforms. So if I have my capture window open and I make a change to my bitmap, I change the, the text highlight and click save, boom, it changes right there in the Flare document. I don't have to go into a re-import or any of that crazy stuff. It's pretty cool. Now those are both out. Mimic is actually kind of where RoboDemo once was. Same type of concept, it's for doing the moving captures, the tutorials, uh, the demos. The big difference is where Captivate, what RoboDemo became Captivate, has really grown off into the e-learning space. It's become quite a heavy e-learning application. It's almost overkill for documentation now. So that's what we're doing with Mimic. Back to the roots of documentation, demos, tutorials. But it's not just Flash. We support the Flash output but then we also support some of the Microsoft Windows Media formats, which are about one-tenth the file size of Flash. Uh, so this is really one of those things that we developed for our own, for our own use. Uh, the problem we had with Flare is we actually used Captivate, recorded a bunch of tutorials for our help system, put them all in, and we had a 400 megabyte help system. Even the Flash format was too heavy for what we could ship. So we ended up taking about half of them back out again and just having to postpone them or put them on the website. By using Mimic, if you download the version 2 beta, or excuse me, the version 2 demo, you will see we've doubled the number of movies we had from version 1, but we haven't 
drastically increased the size of the help system. Why? Because we're using some of the Windows media formats instead of the flash formats. So we were able to get twice as much uh, information in there with the same file size. And then one I really don't even want to talk about, but some people ask about, Blaze. It's really meant for those people who have outgrown Word, but FrameMaker is too expensive, too big, too scary, too hard to use. It's going to be for print only, but it's going to be using the same type of interface you're going to be seeing here. Uh, the reason I think it was announced a little bit early, it's not even shipping till summer. So back of your mind, but it's not something I would expect to put your hands on anytime soon. Whereas Flare has been out, it's already in version 2, Capture is already out, up and running, and Mimic is coming out this month. So the rest of them are all right there. Who? Alright, now I do apologize. I'm going to sit down for the demo part only because I need to be able to run the mouse in the application. Now this is the interface. It is somewhat akin to the RoboHelp interface. We've tried to streamline things a bit. Um, you'll notice that there is a navigational area over on the left, toolbars across the top, a work area on the right. But what is this in the work area right now? We call this the start page. And the reason we did this was, again, a departure from RoboHelp to try and streamline things. RoboHelp was the only application, and I actually fought my developers on this for years and lost, but I'd never seen an application like this, where we put an icon on your desktop, you would double-click it, and it would launch this little mini-application that says, what do you really want to do? And you would have to say, I really want to use RoboHelp, click that, and then finally RoboHelp would open. <laughs> Now, the idea behind it was, remember, we had 24 products in the RoboHelp line. Many were included with RoboHelp, and so you could actually choose to use the screen capture tool or the video tool, or, but most people just wanted to get into RoboHelp. So it was, it was good idea, wrong implementation. So what we've done, a lot of what used to be in that starter application is now just part of the start page. So in the upper left, these are all of the recent projects I've worked on. Um, in the bottom, this is news and updates. If I had an internet connection right now, it would actually fill in here. You'd actually see this um, event would be listed under the events section. It's where we'll be speaking, where you might be able to talk to one of the MADCAP employees, what trade shows we'll be attending, you know, any news and announcements, if new products are launched. That all gets filled in. But probably the most useful part is the upper right, the getting started area. If it's your first time using Flare, there's the getting started wizard. There's the Getting Started Guide. It's the same book that comes in the boxed version, just in PDF format. But the good ones, there's a direct link into those video tutorials right there. And if you open up those video tutorials, there is a whole slew of them. Um, the very first one, Touring the Flare Workspace. There's 30 minutes worth of tutorials just on getting acquainted with the Flare interface. Then there are six steps to online help for those newbies who have never done online help before. It's the core concepts, or as much of the core concepts as we can communicate in 30 minutes of tutorial. Then there's Flare compared with RoboHelp. This is everything from uh, how do I create a TOC in RoboHelp, how do I create a TOC in Flare? How do I do indexing in RoboHelp, how do I do indexing in Flare? Um, it says 45 minutes, but these time frames, they're all cumulative. They're actually three-minute, four-minute little, you know, snippet videos. So it breaks it down into just what you need to see. And there's also the basics of single sourcing. So all of those training tutorials are built in. 
So that's what's on the start page. So as far as the workflow, we tried to make it as familiar to the RoboHelp folks as we could, and we pulled that off. It's identical to RoboHelp and workflow. Basically, three steps to the workflow. Step one is importing any existing or legacy content you may have. You know, get your existing content imported. The second step is the actual authoring, creating new content. And the third step is the publishing of the documentation sets. Light version help system, pro version help system, light version user guide, pro version user guide, all of the outputs. If you're doing context sensitive help, that's kind of step 3B. But it's still the same workflow as in RoboHelp. Now, on the import side, three major options. We can import a non-Flare project. That's what our lawyers call RoboHelp. <laughs> um, when we do that, I'll actually pull up the dialog here. If you have a newer copy of RoboHelp, RoboHelp X5, then we can import the XPJ file. That's the master RoboHelp project file. If you have an older copy of RoboHelp, we can import the MPJ file. That was that big access database that lived beneath RoboHelp and stored everything in the world. If you have an other t another tool that does online help authoring, even Microsoft Help Workshop, we can also import the HHP files. So we can import from just about any tool out there, but with the RoboHelp imports, full featured. Um, even if you've used conditionals and rebel help, the conditionals even come in and our, all the text is pre-matched and pre-marked. So yes, we can import all the rebel help information. We can also import Microsoft Word documents and people say, well wait a minute, RoboHelp could do that. What's the improvement there? Well, RoboHelp did it using the old RTF technology. It would actually communicate with Word through some VBA macros hey, Mr. Word, I need this document, but could you convert it to RTF for me first? And then RoboHelp would consume the RTF through a bunch of macros. Two problems with that. One, RTF is getting a bit old in the tooth. It doesn't fully cover all of the capabilities of Microsoft Word anymore. And macros are becoming a security problem in this modern world of Windows XP, Service Pack 2, Windows Vista, so you have to have all these special signed certificates and it's a pain in the, in the backside. So we've taken a different approach. When we communicate with Word, we use the much newer Microsoft XML schema for Office documents. So we're actually consuming an XML data stream from Microsoft Word. Now the downside to that, it only works with Office 2003 and the new Office 2007. We don't work with older versions of Word than that. Not that we didn't want to. It's just the older versions of Word don't understand XML or don't understand it completely. 2000 had some beginnings of XML understanding, but it wasn't full-featured enough to actually communicate with other applications. So that's the big difference there. Um, where it really gets more important is on the export side, though. Whereas in RebelHelp, when you output to Word, it's stripped everything. You lost your pop-ups, you lost your hyperlinks with Flare. When we output to Word, we can convert pop-ups. We, we can strip them the RoboHelp way. We can convert them to footnotes on the page. Uh, we can include the hyperlinks, remove them, convert them to page number cross-references, you know, see page 47, 
all the things we couldn't do in RoboHelp using the RTF technology. But then also we can import FrameMaker documents. Anybody out here using FrameMaker? We got a few already. Big difference. In a RoboHelp world, supporting FrameMaker was much akin to supporting Word, what we called a one-shot. Give me the MIF file, RoboHelp would consume it, boom, we're done. We forget it ever existed in FrameMaker. It's now RoboHelp content. So that was one problem. The second problem was that we could only import the MIF file, which meant that if your FrameMaker document had several conditions, variables, um, any kinds of special markup, you had to choose one instance of the document, kind of a snapshot, and that's what got sent to RoboHelp. We've skipped MIF completely. Now, if all you have is a MIF file, we can't import that. But we can actually, if Robo, or Robo, if Flare and FrameMaker are on the same machine, we can actually work natively on the .fm and book files. We open the native FrameMaker files. So what that means is you don't get one instance of the FrameMaker document. It means in the Flare environment, you're seeing all of the possible variables, all of the possible conditional items and we automatically add them to all of our capabilities. So it is very full-featured FrameMaker support on the import side. One second. But we can also output back to FrameMaker.fm or book as well. Yes, in the back. What does it do with um, images that are provided by source and not a metadata page? Images, that, images that are brought in by source my best recommendation would be download the trial. It's free for 30 days. You can test it for yourself. But what it's designed to do, it will actually take a copy of those images and they will be brought into a, a uh, Flare environment and they will still be referenced to a source image. It's just It will be a copy of that image from where it originally came from. Um, I know a lot of people would like to see us just keep the relationship to the original source image wherever it was. But in our testing, we found that was extremely difficult to do. It is possible to point back to that source image once it's in a Flare environment, but the default is to take a snapshot of that image. It would depend on how the callouts were put in. Um, the design is, yes, it will. It's supposed to rasterize those, but I have seen some cases where it doesn't, which is, again, why I recommend downloading a trial and doing a quick test. And if you find it doesn't work for you, I will be putting my email address up here in a few minutes. If you're willing to share those files, um, one of the things we're finding with FrameMaker is there are so many ways to do a given thing that we've maybe accommodated 80% of them, and we're still finding the other 20%. So if we're made aware of it, we can fix it fairly quickly. Yes, over here. Do we import from AuthorIt? We can import the HHP files that are generated by AuthorIt. We don't generate the source files because they're locked in that proprietary AuthorIt database. Alrighty. So that's all of the import options. Now for the sake of time here, I'm going to go ahead and open an existing project that I have on this particular system. And then I'll give you what I call the nickel tour of the interface. First thing to point out, over on the right-hand side, this is the visual editor. Um, in the RoboHelp days, we used to call this the WYSIWYG editor. What you see is what you get. Anybody who uses the term WYSIWYG in an XML world, 
you should immediately kind of look funny at them. That term doesn't have a lot of meaning anymore. Um, I call it the visual editor now. Some people call it the WYSIOP editor, which means, you know, what you see is one possibility. Um, <laughs> but the reason for that is the whole concept of XML is it can be transformed into anything you need. So what we're giving you is a visual rendition of the ideal online development, because that's mostly of what online help is all about. We can actually switch this to a print rendition. Um, I don't have all the print styles defined in this project, or I could, but right here where it says medium, default, the default view is the online view. I can switch this to a print view, which would automatically substitute all of my print styles and my style sheet. So I can literally alter the view in the visual editor. So that is the visual editor. Again, meant to be as RoboHelp-like as we could get it, as Word-like as we could get it to be comfortable. But for those people who do know a little bit of XML fundamentals, I'll show you how we can expose even more in a minute. Over on this left side is the uh, management of your project, the navigational area. Somewhat similar to what we had in the RoboHelp, but in RoboHelp, it was this huge long list of mystery folders. Um, the reason I call them mystery folders is we had what were known as virtual folders. The concept was to try and organize things for you and make it easier, but we found it just confused people. There would be a folder here called images, but if you went to the hard drive, there was no images folder. All the images were just loose in the root directory of the project. We've done away with that concept. If you see a folder here in Flare, it exists on the hard drive. It is a, a real literal folder. But the reasons it's so much shorter than in RubbleHelp, we've actually split it. There are two different views here. There's a content view and a project view. Now, why did we do that? Again, from watching RubbleHelp users. We found that very few people would spend a given day doing content work and doing project maintenance. We found that most people do their project maintenance at the very beginning of a project or the very end, beginning or end of a project. In the middle, they spent all their time in content, writing, editing, authoring. So we've split those up. What you see now, this is just content. This is the only thing I have to deal with is content. If I want to deal with project management issues, then I have a project organizer. And here's where I can store my tables of contents, my list of possible variables, um, any reports I want to have, any glossaries I want to use. But for day-to-day -day authoring, this is strictly all of my content pages. So we've tried to make that easier as well. Um, the toolbars are a little bit different than in RoboHelp, new icons. Again, the goal here wasn't to be a clone of RoboHelp, but to be similar enough that instead of spending a month learning a whole new tool, you could spend a week getting used to a new interface. That was the goal. All right. So I want to focus on this visual editor for a minute. It's got some really neat features. Uh, you can do all the things you would expect to do in RubbleHelp, you know, add text, copy, paste, you do those things. Where we've gotten a little bit different is how we expose the underlying XML structures of a document. Um, you'll find a lot of tools in the industry that when they go to XML, they just start adding a bunch of tags. I hope I'm already down at 1024 by 768, so I don't know if you can see it or not, but there's a bunch of, of of element names here now that I've just embedded in through the text. And that works, but why have a visual editor? Why not just use Notepad if you're going to do that? So we've done something a little bit different here. We have actually put in 
a visual structure bar to the left of the content. So now at a glance, I can see the structure of this page. It has a body. Inside the body, I have a heading one, paragraph, 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 an ordered list. It has four list items. And then it starts over again, but this time it's in Spanish. So I've got a hybrid topic here. But I can see structurally, instantly, what's on the page. <coughs> now, what's the benefit to that? Well, it's not just for looks. If I'm in RoboHelp, or even Word for that matter, and I decide that bullet four here should really be bullet number one in this list, what do I typically have to do? Highlight it, control X, bullet four goes away, I come up here to bullet one, put my cursor in there, control V, it inserts it, but now I have two items on the first line, now I've got to fix that. I'm not moving a list item, I'm moving text and then having to fix the list. Well, the nice thing is I can come over here, I can just grab this box for list item number four, do a drag and drop, and the list item just moved. I'm literally moving a structural element, not text. I can do the same thing with any block level element. Um, if I decide to combine two lists, I can actually grab the entire list down below, do a drag and drop, and the whole list just moved. Now the neat thing is it says one, two, three, four, and it starts over. One, two, three, four. But by looking at the structure blocks, I can see, well, no wonder. It's two separate and very distinct lists. Whereas if this was a RoboHelp interface, all I know is I've got a broken list. I could spend an hour banging on my style sheet and this will never fix itself because it's at a code level problem. But by having that structure view, I can instantly see, oh, silly me, it's two lists. If I bring up the context menu, I can select merge with previous list and I do get one nice cohesive list now. In fact, you'll find that that's two of the areas we put a lot of our focus was list handling and table handling because both were just abysmal in RoboHelp. Some of the other things that we can do with list items that we couldn't in the RoboHelp days, if I go to my format menu and my list options, I can do an alphabetical sort of a list or whatever the current order is, I can reverse the order of that list. Um, I can unbind, which is just a fancy way of saying convert it back to text, make it no longer a list. But the key one, I can do a continue sequence. So if I have a, a procedure with five steps, and I've got step one, step two, but now I need a figure. And then below the figure, I need an explanatory paragraph, and now I need steps three, four, five. Extremely difficult in RubbleHelp. In Flare, put in a list, one, two, add your figure, add your paragraph, add a new list, but then apply continue sequence. It just starts up three, four, five. It will automatically pick up wherever the previous list left off. If you need more control than that, then we can actually do list overrides. I can force any list to start at any number or letter that I want, or I can even go to any individual list item. A specific item can be overridden to have any letter or any number that I want even within a larger list. So lots of list controls. Um, other things I forgot to mention, you'll notice these tabs across the top, that's that multiple document interface. 
I can switch to any topic that I want that I have open without fear of losing the previous topic. Uh, whereas in RoboHelp, it was one topic at a time. The other neat thing is, if I switch to my introduction topic, where's my undo list? Well, it's all grayed out. I haven't made any changes to this page, so I don't have an undo history. Oh, but what about all those changes I made to the welcome topic? Guess what? They're still there. Every page has its own undo buffer. So if you have 10 pages open, every page has a unique buffer for its undo capabilities. That bit a lot of people with RoboHelp. You'd open up the visual editor, you'd make five changes. I just want to check something in true code real quick. And you bring up the true code view, that just flushed your undo buffer. You go back to visual, you can't undo anything because RoboHelp only had one undo buffer that all the views had to share. Um, something else we've done is you'll notice instead of just having the undo arrow in the toolbar, we also have the text. And that kind of throws some people. People have never seen that in an interface before. Uh, we've never seen it before, but the reason we did that was again from the test lab. We would give people a test to accomplish that said, you know, to undo back to the step where you did this. And people would hit Control-Z, 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 control and they'd go two steps too far. Oh, bummer. I have to read. This way, when I hit Control-Z, I know it's going to undo the merge of those two lists. I have a visual idea of exactly what's going to happen. Now if I hit Control-Z, it's going to undo that drag and drop move when I brought the two lists together. So there's a lot of things in Flare that we have never seen anywhere else, but they came from watching Word users, RoboHelp users, front page users, before we ever started building an interface. Even, actually, this is one of my favorite ones. Now this one is extremely hard to see, so I'm going to get Microsoft to help me on this one. Go to All Programs and Accessories, Accessibility Magnifier. Now this is a cool tool for doing demos if you've never seen it before. But one of the problems we've always had is with bold text or any inline formatting. Bold, italic, underline. Well, underline is pretty easy to see. But where does it begin? Where does it end? In an XML document, it's just a node in the XML document in the underlying structure. So what we looked at was the old I-beam cursor. And we thought, this thing hasn't changed since the first visual editor 12, 14, 16 years ago. Why hasn't it, you know, evolved? So we've taken some liberties with this cursor. Now, it's probably hard to see, but the word application is bold here. As I approach the word application, you will actually see that cursor change. Oops. So now I'm in front of the letter A, but I'm outside the bold attribute. If I move one pixel to the right, I'm still in front of the letter A, but I'm now inside the bold attribute. So we're not having to show a bunch of markers and a bunch of tags, but where it's really nice, if I go to the end of this word, I can see that whoever did this was lazy. They bolded the space. <laughs> and I can see at a glance exactly where that bold begins and ends without having to you know, guess and do some experimenting. Lots of little changes everywhere throughout the interface. But I've got to get rid of that magnifier or I will go blind after a while. All right. 
Something else that's kind of neat, when I opened this project, these two topics opened automatically. Where did that come from? Well, Flare is smart enough to remember state. One of the other problems we, had, we found in looking at uh, some of the assumptions we had in the RoboHelp days, all the RoboHelp projects we tested on were little, small, in-house test projects, which doesn't always give the developers an actual view into real-life situations. And so with RoboHelp, when you closed RoboHelp, it forgot everything, and you started over from scratch every time you opened it. And what we found is in the real world, when you have 10,000 topics you're dealing with, it can be a challenge just to remember, what was I editing on Friday? So when you close Flare on Friday, and then Monday you come in and open it, it's going to open right back to the two topics that were open when you closed it. It remembers what you were working on when you closed the application. All right, but that's enough of that. I do want to take a minute to talk about tables because that is way cool. Now, here I have a topic with a table in it. Uh, before we get started, a little mini survey. How many people here have ever worked with tables in RoboHelp? How many people have ever tried to copy and paste an entire row in a table in RoboHelp? <laughs> Doesn't work very well. You get to move one cell at a time. Uh, again, that's just an architectural limitation in RoboHelp. We had tried to fix that several times. We weren't able to. By moving to a new architecture, new technologies in Flare, the original plan was to allow you to copy and paste an entire row. And we did that. But then we thought, you know what? Why even make people do the copy part? These structure bars worked so well during the beta for content that we've added some table bars. So now when my cursor is inside the table and I have my table bars on, I can do the same thing with tables I can with any other element. Um, if I decide that uh, one of my rows should change, you know, maybe the Sharon row should actually go above the George row, well, I can just grab the Sharon row, do a drag and drop, and now the Sharon row is above the George row. It's that easy to manipulate content. Um, if I want to add a new row, I can just bring up the context for a row, insert new above, insert new below, no problem there. If I want to do copy and paste, I can do a whole row, but I can even do, you know, contiguous cells. The only limitation is if I highlight three by three, then when I paste, I have to highlight three by three, or the paste won't function. So that's the one thing. We've really tried to improve the editing capability of tables, but what about formatting? RoboHelp did support table formatting, but only using inline styles, which meant that every table had to be manually formatted. So if you have 2,000 topics with 1,000 tables, and somebody in the marketing department says, you know, it sure would be nice if they all had a light green background and a blue header, you had to go manually edit all 1,000 tables. It was a bit of a nightmare. Well, with Flare, we're really pushing people to be more in standards compliance, pushing people to use external style sheets wherever possible. So I'll put my cursor in my table. I will say table, table style, edit style. This tells Flare I want to edit the style sheet associated with this table. Now this has come up here where I can see the editor, but I can't see the topic anymore. Pretty typical things you have to deal with in RoboHelp. You can see one thing at a time. This entire interface is flexible. What I can do is say window, 
and float, and my editor just popped up in its own window. Anybody here lucky enough to have dual monitors? This is great for dual monitors. You can drag this off to your second monitor, and then you've got your table editor, your style editor, and your topic editor at the same time. Um, in this case, I'm actually going to float it up above so we can see both at the same time. So another thing that's uh, different in Rebel Help tables were only rows and columns, period. In Flare, we have proper support for header and footer rows and tables. Um, if you're doing any 508 compliant work, it's much nicer on people using screen readers because the screen readers are designed that if they see a header row, they will actually read that as table row headings. They know it's, it's identifying columns. Uh, so I do have a proper header in this t particular table. I'm going to go for kind of a, an accounting spreadsheet look here. So for my header, I'll go for a dark green. And then on my body area, we'll bring up the rows. And the default is to make a normal row on every single row using something we developed called patterns. Now, a pattern is just any repeating element you want on your table formatting. If I add a second pattern, I can tell Flare, okay, every second row, make it a nice light green color. And now, boom, I've got my green bar kind of accounting look. Looks like I need a line between pattern two and three, so, or pattern where it repeats to one again, so we will add a separator. And that's pretty much what I want right there. So I made three changes, and I formatted an entire table. But what's nice, as soon as I hit save, not only will it update this table, but if I have a thousand tables all referencing this one style sheet, all 1,000 tables would update now. So it is literally global control over table formatting. And the other thing that's neat, I mentioned earlier that this visual editor, it's doing real-time transforms. So literally, as soon as I click save, boom, this topic will update. If this project is up on a network drive that all the authors have access to, and the graphic artist changes this little icon right here and saves it back to the project, the second the graphic artist hits save, my view changes while I'm working. It is literally real-time pulling these files off the hard drive. Whereas with RoboHelp, it, once it was loaded and in memory, boom, that was it. That's all you got to see. If somebody else did something on the... Well, first of all, if anybody else did something on the project, you're usually in trouble because you didn't want to put a RoboHelp project on a network drive. But here it's designed to do real-time transform. So now, normally I would click the Save icon on the toolbar. I'm covering that up right now, so I'm going to cheat and use the keyboard shortcut of Control-S. And boom, the topic just updated. So it's that easy. Um, doing the, again, all of my tables just updated. Yes, question? Two really quick ones. When you talk about the heading rows, that means if you have a table, there's multiple pages that heading row will repeat on each page. At this point, the heading row will not repeat on each page. We haven't taken it quite that far yet. Um, there, well, let me rephrase. There are some style techniques to make that happen, but they're a little bit advanced, and honestly, I would have to go look them up myself to redo them. But it can be done, okay. primarily when you go to print, though. Okay, that's fine. I, I, here, one is this 
Okay. But that's they're important group. Um, the other question is, you were just talking about multiple users having it on a, on a, on a shared drive, blah, blah. Um, how do you handle multiple users, not, not, in, not in the same topic, of course, but in various topics within a library, within a project? How do we handle multiple authors within a project? Uh, the answer is we don't have to do anything special. A lot of what we've done architecturally makes it much easier than in the Rubble. Well, the first problem with RubbleHelp is Rub Now, this is not a stab at RubbleHelp. The problem we had was that the RubbleHelp architecture was built before Ethernet even existed. So it's kind of tough to, you know, be a mind reader and know it's coming down the road. Um, so it was never meant to put products on a network. But even if you could, things like indexing. There was one master index file for the whole project. Once one person started doing indexing, it would be locked for everybody. Architecturally, we're very different. That's one of the reasons we've done indexing at the character level now. You can have 10 different people in 10 different topics all doing indexing at the same time, and they don't collide. Um, that's one of the reasons we did multiple and modular tables of contents. You could literally split the TOC for various art, art, uh, artists, various authors, and, okay, these five books are yours, these three books are yours, and these four books are mine. And as long as we stay in our areas, there's no way we'll ever collide. Even if we did collide, though, without having to install anything on the server, there is collision detection built into the Flare interface. Let's say I open this What's New topic, and I start working on it. And another author opens the same What's New topic, and they start working on it. Well, at this point, we're both working on the same topic. But I mentioned earlier, Flare is doing that real-time transform from the hard drive. So it's expecting to see a certain file on the hard drive. And as soon as the other author does a save, my copy throws up the red flag. Whoa! Problem! The file on the hard drive no longer matches what we loaded into memory. It would then prompt me to resolve the situation by doing something, again, that I couldn't do in RebelHelp. I can actually go file and well I haven't made any changes to it yet but I can actually do a save as instead of a save. There it is. So instead of what's new topic I can make this what's new you know my January 5 topic and then I swear I did not pay her to ask this. This just led into the perfect example I forgot to show earlier. I can, I can actually open my what's new mic topic and the original what's new topic. And just like I floated that one earlier, I can float the what's new topic. And then by using these blue arrows, I could dock the two side by side. And now I can do a complete compare, contrast, copy, paste, resolve any duplications. You should call the other person and say, I go. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it tell the, person, the second person who opens a, a, an already open topic? <laughs> At this time, no. Because to do that, we would have to install something on a server or a network share. And we really wanted to keep it easy. Um, so this is great if you have like five authors, four uh, If you're getting into a team of 10 or 12, I will use source control. Absolutely. And that's an, another difference. Since RebelHelp lived on top of that proprietary database, it wasn't compatible with most source control systems. 
Um, in fact, you could only use Visual Studio if you used Robo Source Control as a translator. With Flare, everything in the project is XML. Not just the topic files, but all the project files. So we're compatible with any source control system on the planet. Uh, source Gear, CVS, Visual Studio Source, or Microsoft Visual Source Safe. Yeah, you name it, we work with it. That, again, it was just a, an architectural thing. We wanted to be standards compliant, so there are no proprietary files anywhere. In, well, in fact, how are we doing time-wise? I have time for a quick sidebar. We actually have people doing things with Flare we never anticipated. Um, let me put this back to where it belongs. Uh, actually, let me finish up tables. And if I forget, remind me to talk about the, uh, the crazy publish capability. Uh, if you mention that, I'll remember what it means. Okay, so the other thing I want to point out with the tables, and this is pretty cool. Let's say you get this table just the way you want it, and then it turns out, oh man, I've got to add a new row. What does that usually do in Microsoft Word to a pattern like this? Out the window. But let's say I need to add a new row between Bill and George. So I go to the Bill row, insert new above, bingo, bango, it automatically remapped the color scheme. So it's fairly intelligent on how it does it. It also works for single sourcing. If I use a conditional and I mark these three rows and say that these are only for the pro version and I publish for the light version, so remove them, it won't publish two white rows. Even in single sourcing, it will fix the color scheme. All right, that pretty much wraps up tables. So the next thing I want to talk about a little bit is the actual publishing, getting content out of Flare. And for that, I'm going to switch over to the project organizer. Uh, for those who have used RoboHelp, you probably heard the term single source layouts. Good idea, silly name. We just call them publishing targets or targets. Um, in a target, some people get hung up on the different types of help. Microsoft HTML help, browser-based help, print... The best way to think of a target, it's something you have to deliver to the development team. So if you have to provide three versions of Microsoft HTML help, that would be three targets. So if it's you know, the light version, the pro version, and the internal tech support version, that would just be three targets. Um, the way we do our targets... In RebelHelp, it was this long wizard it walked you through for us. It's basically a tabbed interface. So I just double-clicked one of my targets. It's labeled WebHelp. Uh, comment is the text that shows up on top of the toolbar. I can 